Q&A thing again. And, and what happened, if you remember last week, is us prepping a message on uh, the hiddenness of God. And it just felt really stale and just kind of like, wow, um, that's fun. Uh, and so I, it just didn't feel right. Ran all the hot water out of the, the shower, which is what I do when I, I'm praying. Just stay in the shower. My wife hates it. And kind of decided we would do something that I used to do when I was a college pastor, which is just let um, any and all questions come. We used to call it the skeptics ball. I don't know that we need to call it here. But the idea is you can ask any question about anything. History, philosophy, religion. Please no politics, but that's cool. Um, church history, theology, philosophy, other religions. Just kind of anything's wide open. And hopefully some of it hits on the hiddenness of God stuff. Uh, but it doesn't have to. So... If you want to, just there's a mic on either side, and you guys can come down, and we're going to just do the Q&A thing and, and uh, go as long as we can, and then we'll cut it off and go from there. So, Yo, Ken. My name's Kyle. Um, I was going to ask a question last week, but I didn't get to. But um, uh, My question is on our fruit. And um, when Jesus said to the fig tree, you will never bear fruit again, and it withered, um, I believe that's because we're supposed to bear fruit year-round. So I just had a question on um, some ways, what are some ways we can recognize our own fruit um, throughout the year? Yeah, uh, from hearing the question right, it's it's talking about a story of, of Jesus when he comes up, and there ought to be fruit on this tree. There's not fruit, so Jesus curses it. Um, and it's interesting, Jesus doesn't curse many things in his life. He kind of cursed the religious leaders, which is a really interesting thing. And then he curses this tree. And what you begin to realize is there's the same common thread in those two things. He cursed the religious leaders because they weren't doing what they ought to be doing. So their function, the way God created them is, is people first, made in the image of God. And then secondly, as leaders, would be that they would function in a certain way um, bear fruit so that it would bless others and create kind of shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom is kind of the way it ought to be. I mean, it's, it's richer than the word peace. Usually when you hear shalom, it's like peace. And the interesting thing about American word peace is it's the absence of war. Does that make sense? Like when you hear peace, it's like the absence of war. It's like not wartime. Uh, the Hebrew word here is, is much more forward thinking than that. It's not just the absence of war. It's the presence of goodness in the way it should be. Does that make sense? So Jesus curses like religious leaders, you know, woe to you, the Pharisees. You're like snakes. You're like this. He curses them because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing in building shalom. And then he gets this fig tree, and I think you see the same thing. It's like this fig tree, you were designed for this purpose, for this function, and you're not doing that. And he curses it, and it withers and dies. Um, and so, to us, we really have, have to grapple with this. Um, we have a Christian view that kind of sees shalom as the absence of conflict. So it's kind of a deficient view. It's, as long as I'm not bad, then I'm good. And goodness isn't defined that way. It's, if I'm good, then I'm good. It's not just not being bad. Um, there's a positive aspect to this whole thing. And so I think we can come to church sometimes. I think we can do religion. I think we can think, well, I'm not a bad person. Look at who I'm comparing myself to. Um, and they're, they're much worse than I am, so I must be pretty good. And we always compare favorably, don't we? 
and we don't look kind of at Christ and look at what God designed with shalom the way we're supposed to be and go, wow, I really fall short of that. And that humbles us. We kind of repent of that. And we just really say, God, I, I know I can't get there on my own. I, I fail all the time. Please forgive me and please work through me that I might bear fruit, that I might be an agent of kind of the rebuilding of shalom. So, so we have to understand when we, def- when we judge ourselves, we have to look at this positive value, not just the absence of conflict. Um, and then we have to realize what fruit is. And we define fruit uh, individually a lot. Um, I read my Bible all the time. That's fruit, is, is what we think. Uh, I pray a lot. That's fruit. Um, I fast. That's fruit. And then you get to Isaiah and, and other scriptures, and you see God getting angry with people and saying, your prayers I do not hear because you're not treating each other right. Your fasting is not what I consider fasting because look at the injustice that's really going on here. And so the kind of things that we tally up um, are not really the kinds of things that God tallies up when it comes to fruit. And in Isaiah, you see one of the most interesting things in Scripture. You actually see where God is shocked. I mean, did you know that God could be shocked? God is actually shocked in the book of Isaiah because there's nobody standing in the gap between um, those that are perpetrating evil or hurting or damaging or whatever other people and the victims of injustice. And God is seeing that nobody's in the gap and crying out for the oppressed or, or the voiceless, and he's shocked by that. There's nobody that's bearing fruit because the fruit really comes down to relational stuff that has to do with love, that has to do with unity, that has to do with sacrificially giving ourselves for others that we all might um, be blessed. Does that make sense? So one, we have to realize we have to define ourselves by the positive, not just the absence of the negative. Two, we have to realize that the bar of good is not just little routines that we build into our life, but it's really the heart stuff that would allow us to give to others in a way that says it's not about me. Uh, Jesus Real quickly, we'll end with this. He says something really fascinating. He says, the guy with two coats should give one coat to the guy with no coats. I mean, it's a form of, like, voluntary socialism. And we see, we're going to see this in two weeks when we talk about Acts 2. It's, it's not a government that, like, forces the redistribution of goods and just lowers the bar. It's a voluntary realization that, that my life is defined not by how far away from everybody else I can get to where I stand alone, look at my money, look at my stuff, but it's, it's defined by how much fruit I can bear by saying I care about these people, I'm going to go back to them and share and help and give and love and serve so that we together as a family might, might follow, um, follow God and, and have goodness together, shalom. So I think it's an interesting thing, the, the whole fruit conversation, and, and we just have to continually talk about it. Hebrews says we have to encourage one another daily. So the whole idea of us like producing fruits, what we were designed for, the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus says in John 15, go and bear much fruit, fruit that will last. Uh, we just have to talk about it. And we have to be honest, ridiculously honest with ourselves. So I don't know who's next, but we'll go over here. Hopefully you can kind of work with me because I'm not very articulate but um, my question is just about um, 
you know, how we, as we sort of cycle through these times of, I don't know, some people call it spiritual dryness or, and then we'll have times where we feel really emotionally connected to God and we just have more sensation and it feels really cool and, and then not again. So um, what my question is, is I, I've heard different explanations for that. Um, One is that that just that just happens. God gives us those times to to uh, I don't know stand on our own sort of or whatever, and also that you know you're not reading your Bible enough or whatever. But um, it's it's hard it's hard. To t- I mean, is it really is there really a I'm just wondering does God really do that where He steps back? Or is it just as we experience those positive feelings uh, and that sense of connection with God that just very gradually we, you know, pride creeps in and we just can't help but drift away because we're just so, you know, we just live in this fallen world? That's a great question. Uh, I'll try to answer the best I can. I think there's four, four different parts. I think the question, if I understand it correctly, is how do you explain these these dry times, these these times where you feel distant from God, uh, where God is hidden in some sense? Um, and I think the first one, Saint John of the Cross wrote, "The Dark Night of the Soul," and he just talked about um, as we mature as Christians, there's that season in which the closeness, the newness, the intimacy. Um, is no longer there, and you kind of have to walk on your own two feet. And, and just like walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, God is there, and he's with you, and he's in that whole thing. But you are, are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You really feel isolated, alone, and exposed. Um, and I think that phrase, dark night of soul, I think is pretty accurate, and I think his intent there is pretty pretty true. If you look at children, Paul talks about new believers, um, having spiritual milk. I mean, they're like babies and they're nurtured and they're close. And then as kids get older, there's, there's more of a separation and there's times where, you know, I've, my daughters have gone to school some days where they've been ridiculed or something like that. And um, the pain that causes me as a father to see that they're isolated and alone and, and just suffering that way in school um, is very real, but that's a part of their growing up and their going through life that, um, they're going to be exposed to those things. They're going to learn from it. They're going to learn how to handle it. They're going to come back to me, and hopefully I can nurture them in that. But it's a different kind of nurture than with a baby or an infant. So I think that God does, just as a father, have these seasons where where we get refined almost. Um, I think the second part of that um, is that we usually blame God for the dryness. Let me go one step further. We usually blame God for suffering, for anything that's, that's suffering. Um, the fascinating thing about Isaiah, you know, maybe you can just, if you guys have a Bible, you can turn there. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 says this, 
and I'll explain kind of my point in a second, but it says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. It's verse 17, 51 verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained um, to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Of all the sons she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and the sword, who can console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope, cotton, and net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. So, double calamity. I mean, so, not just bad, but, but really, really super sucky bad. Okay? Um, and nobody can comfort you. I mean, you know, spin in circles. You can call out all you want, because the only one that could comfort you in that would be God, but it's actually God who's doing it. Okay? So, double calamity. No one to comfort you. It's God who's doing it. And it's like, what do we make of that? How do we digest that? I think the first thing about that is simply this. Um, the word theodicy was, was coined by uh, Leibniz, the philosopher Leibniz, and, and basically means justifying God, like defending the justice of God. So theodicy in philosophy is, is writing a treatise that basically explains how there can be evil in the world or suffering in the world and God. It's, it's I mean, a whole rich thing in the philosophy of religion of how you defend or justify God because of the presence of evil, okay? Here's the interesting thing. Um, God, I don't think, wants to be justified for it. I mean, he says right here, evil and suffering, yeah, I'm the one, or maybe not evil, but suffering and calamity and double, and, and there's no one to comfort you, and the worst of the worst, the bleakest of the bleakest. Yeah, you don't have to, like, come up with an excuse for me. I'm doing it. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's this really fascinating thing, and we can't comprehend that. Whenever we see suffering, we're like, God, you better justify yourself. Like, you better come up with a, an answer for that. God's like, uh, not only do I need not, not come up with an answer, but, oh, by the way, I'm the one that's actually doing it. Um, and it might not be because you sinned. It might be because a nation is sinning. It might be because the humanity is sinning. It might be because who knows what. But God has a, a heavy hand at times um, and he doesn't need to be ju- he doesn't ask us to justify him he asks us to realize that he is so far above us and that we better really humble ourselves and repent and say unless we in, in right wrongs or, or have a right heart in front of him his hand will not relent and it goes on here to say he's going to take that goblet away of wrath and give it to the people that are now oppressing I mean he will always move that heavy hand around to the people that really deserve it the most. But in terms of your question, what do we do with this hiddenness or, or separation from God? We have to be willing to accept and to realize that sometimes that is God's desire. It's a hard thing um, to swallow. The next thing is, is that we realize we ourselves in that situation contribute, can contribute, to um, the hiddenness of God. Isaiah talks about your sins have hidden you from God. Your sins have hidden you from God. So one of the things we should be asking when we don't sense God's presence is, is, is there something I need to hear from you that I'm not looking to hear? It's not, it's not the question I'm asking, but it's what I need to hear. So God, have I not done something or have I done something wrong? Let me step back. Have my sins caused this separation? 
um, this felt separation from you. And so our sins sometimes can hide us from God. And so I think part of this whole dry season thing is to say, is it on us or is it on God? And I don't think we look at ourselves critically enough sometimes to say maybe it's on us. And then the last thing is um, a sense of euphoria. We pursue God with this, this idea or this notion. We all fall into it at times. Maybe it ebbs and flows, but we fall into it with this sense of if, if I'm connected with God, there's this euphoria that ought to be there. And I think it happens early on in our Christian walk. In the book of Revelation, there's a letter written that says you've lost your first love. So that, so that, that newness of, of love when something is, is brand new and, and just shiny and attractive and, and everything about you is there and you're obsessed with it and it feels so great, whatever, you've lost that. And, and so that's a, that's a pattern that happens. And I think we ex- come to expect that euphoria we're entertainment junkies in America. We're into instant gratification. We're into, we're numb. That's why movies just get more and more shocking or more and more graphic because we're kind of numb to stuff. So to, to really feel like it has to be, has to, has to be extreme. And I think sometimes we get to where we blame God for the lack of a, a euphoria that we want or desire. I'm not saying this is always the case. I'm not saying it's the case with you, but we have to sometimes, I think, step back and say, what does God promise in terms of his closeness? And, and am I, are my expectations matching up with that? Or am I expecting some kind of euphoria or religious experience almost on a daily basis, like it's a drug to me, and, and I have to have it each day, or I'm just going to kind of say it doesn't work anymore? Um, and so... The relationship has to be able to transition from that early love, um, attractiveness, whatever, into that longer, deeper, more steady kind of friendship. If you're married, you probably know what that's like. It starts one way and then, and then shifts into a, a deeper, greater, in some sense, friendship that's, that's steady and constant and good. Um, and we have, to, we have to kind of expect that. I think one of the things we can do with the dryness is, is realize we're expecting God to do for us more than what he's promised to do. There's a couple more things I could say to that, but I'm going to hold on to them, see if they come up. Um, we'll go over here. So. I was wondering if you could speak maybe a little bit to uh, how how we as a church uh, balance justice and mercy with, um, with uh, meeting spiritual needs. Um, I love what Antioch does in, in the missions and outreach and and just focusing on like world relief next, and and even the, our local communities, um, I see a lot of a lot of focus towards uh, justice and mercy, uh, and meeting physical needs. And I know that that leads to meeting spiritual needs, but oftentimes I feel like we different, don't necessarily hear it. I just thought maybe we could hear a little bit about how the spiritual needs of of the people uh, touched by world relief next are are being met, or people here in, in the community. Uh, it's, uh, kind of relating to Micah six eight, where it says, uh, "You know, He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to love justice and mercy, and to walk humbly with our God." Like we got to remember that humbly with our God part, you know. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. okay, uh, how does Antioch balance these things out? Let me grab a second part of that answer and front load it transition a bit, but um, I think the second part 
is that we don't on purpose. You know, I'm going to unpack that, but um, there's a sense in which for us to heal the wound within ourselves, we have to be reaching outside ourselves. There's the key to spiritual health is a realization that it's not about me. Does that make sense? I mean, it's a, it's a deep realization that um, it's not about me. We, we all are wounded. It's a messy reality. Ultimately, God will right those wrongs. But we can, we can get caught up in a self-help mentality that religion or Christianity is about me fixing my wounds. And sometimes we can get so locked into that that we, it'll take the rest of our lives, because you know what, we're never going to solve them all, right? I mean, you're going to die with some unhealed wounds. Um, you're going to die with some scars. But we can get so obsessed with ourselves working this thing out that we never get around to justice. I think the thing that justice does and why the religious leaders were always supposed to keep it in front of people is, one, it brings perspective. Um... Bend is like a ghost town now in my mind. I drive around, I'm like, man, this is what a ghost town would feel like. Like half-built things, you know, the, the gold runs out like in the Old West. It's kind of interesting. I and mean, there's a BBC article that was written like where <laughs> British broadcasting came to Bend, Oregon to report on uh, America's kind of bubble-bursting kind of economy. I'm like, wow, it's my hometown. Um, it's an interesting thing that that they would come. So there are a lot of physical and spiritual and real needs going on in Bend. Okay? I'm going to get the second part, like I said, I'm going to get to explain that in just a second here. How do we meet those needs? But the, the first part of what I'm trying to say is this. Um, one perspective. Nobody in Bend is getting pulled out of their house in the middle of the night and being raped by 30 men. Um, it could happen, but it's pretty rare that in the middle of the night someone would come into your house and put your husband and your sons in front of you and kill them. Um, we don't experience a government that does not care at all about our plight. Our government really cares um, that we have protection laws for bankruptcy and we have protection laws for job loss and we have you know, stimulus packages to try to help. I mean, so whether it's working or not, You've got to understand our government actually tries to, to help and to maintain a certain sense of order and a certain sense of justice. Um, and that's at the material, physical level, not the spiritual level, okay? But, but it's there. Um, there are governments that are not only not trying to help people, but they're the ones that are actively perpetuating the violence that just destroys, utterly destroys families and people. Um, there are governments that allow trafficking of young girls, um, so we have to first realize perspective, you know, our perspective has to be that as bad as it gets here, um, there are also needs in the world that are greater or could be greater. I don't know what your need is, but could, certainly could be greater. And so we've got to begin to realize that the problem is bigger than just us. And so what it forces us to do is not become self-absorbed in healing ourselves, but to say there's a greater problem here and part of my healing comes in trying to help others. So not focusing purely on myself. When I get in a spiritual funk, I've been in a spiritual funk before, F-U-N-K, um, 
one of the, the easiest ways to get out of that is to just get in the car, drive over to someone that you know is needy and give them something. You know, hey, I was thinking of you, wanted to bless you, or just a note. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, things don't seem so bad. Like that helped to kind of get things moving. And um, So one of the things we have to do is have perspective. And when we have perspective, it, while we're dealing with our own stuff, we do it in a way where we're trying to engage other people and it's bigger and it's broader and spiritual growth, and hear me now, like this is a theological, theological truth of Antioch. It's not a value we have. This is a belief we have. That you cannot grow spiritually unless there's some sort of working out in the world with, with what you're doing. Some kind of practice of love. You can't grow unless you're growing in your capacity to love. And you can't grow in your capacity to love just by reading books. That's what I'm basically saying. All the Bible studies, all the books, all the everything that you can read help you understand and learn more. There's more categories, more things written, more things you know, more answers you have. But to grow spiritually, it has to be your capacity to love and care about other people. And that only comes by doing it, by, by actually loving. And so we have to continually call our community as a whole community to be aware and to love outside of ourselves. Because if we don't love outside of ourselves we won't grow. Like our growth necessitates an outward working and an outward concern. Okay, so that's the first part. It's a little bit harder. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like you don't become a good football player by being in the locker room only. There has to be some working out of this thing. That's at a broader level justice. And when you come up on, a, on an accident, who do you help first? I mean, there's, there's bodies strewn everywhere. Who do you help first? You help the most severe case first. I've got to start here. It's the worst. And there are some things in this world that are clearly the worst. Okay, so we have to hold on to those. But that doesn't mean we don't care about other things that are very real, very deep, very messy, very traumatic, and very painful here in Bend, spiritually, physically, emotionally. We, we hold on to the one but don't let go of the other. This one's necessary or we become really self-absorbed. Um, but people in the church that come to me and they'll be like, we care about that. Well, what about Bend? What about Central Oregon? I'm like, let's not pit the two against each other. That's a false dilemma. Um, we don't have to care about one and not the other. We can care about both. And so we anchor here trying to get outside of ourselves. And then we come along and say, but we also care about ourselves. I mean, I meet with people every week. I know Brandon does. I know Justice, uh, Justin does. Justice. <laughs> um, no elders do. I know lots of you do. You take your lunches, you take your coffees, and God has put it on your heart to help other people. I know women in this church that open their home to other women to bring them in because they care about nurturing some pretty deep um, wounds and scars in those life. We, in their lives. We have a, a whole small group program that starts in two weeks, which is designed to get us in the kinds of relationships that we need so that people will know our needs, know our hang-ups, know our our hidden, you know, whatever, know our struggles, whether it's financial or spiritual, and then they're able to come around us and support us and encourage us. I was talking to Adam Brown this week, and he had two shoulder surgeries. And, I mean, that, that's physical, emotional, um, financial, and their small group coming around for them two different times with 10 days of meals and being there in their life, taking care of them as a family. Uh, that happens, that kind of nurture, that kind of encouragement 
ought to happen by us being knit together in a fabric, a community, where, where we're carrying one another's burdens. Naturally, because we're aware of them, because we're, we're right there. Does that make sense? This should be easier. It's, it's close. Implicit in the whole thing of um, the voiceless, you know, we, we're supposed to speak up or cry out for, for the voiceless, those without a voice. <laughs> if the person that was getting pulled out of the hut in the middle of the night and raped by 30 men and having husbands and, and, and sons killed in front of her, if that person was here in Bend, would she have a voice? I mean, she would have a huge voice. This whole town would come to a stop. All the media, everything would be aimed with one loud voice, crying out that this is the the absolute opposite of shalom. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And we would all together, with one voice, cry out against that. Because of proximity. So the whole reason we have World Relief Next and we care about that is because by definition how far it is from us, the proximity, is why it's voiceless. We have to choose to go over there and to care or to bring it here and to care or in our prayers to care because it's not right in our immediate sphere of concern. And if we don't discipline ourselves to have a voice for the voiceless and train ourselves just simply to think that the voiceless are the people around us, they're the needy, they're try- I mean, I, I'm needy, and I'm around you. You know, you're needy, you're around me. The needy are around us, and there's some voiceless around us that we need to do a better job of, of speaking into. But, but there are also some real voiceless people that are far away because of proximity. We have to train ourselves to think that. So, so we try and realize that we should and ought to be meeting each other's needs because we're right here. We ought to know about them. We ought to be speaking into them. We've got Kiln's College classes, which are crazy discipleship senior pastors in this town that are committing to discipling people in those classes and working with them and loving on them and staying late and answering questions. Um, I mean, it ought to be crisscrossing all over the place. Um, nurture, discipleship, care, concern. We have a benevolence fund. Someone dropped a couple hundred dollars on the church this morning. Um, I never see $100 bills, so I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. I forgot what those look like, you know, and but I mean, this church cares about this church and there's probably so much more going on than what any of us realize in terms of actual care and concern and nurture um, for spiritual, physical, emotional, relational needs within this congregation. Um, high school workers meeting with needy high school kids. I mean, it happens all over the place. And we can't, we can't pit the two against each other. Um, we're not going to pit the two against each other. We, we have to do this because God's over in the Congo because he's there just like he's here and he's waiting for congregations to, to, to realize that um, he's there waiting on us to get involved. And we can't whitewash deep problems that need real nurture and solutions and discipleship and love and encouragement and all that comes with that. We can't whitewash that either, and I think that's the point of the question, and just triumphantly run around the world trying to fix problems over there, but we're never really healing ourselves. You know, physician, heal thyself. Um, it's, it's a both and, it's not an either or. And so hopefully we won't, all of us have, have a preference. If, I, if we just took a, 
You know, let's just do that. I'm really going on a limb. It's really interesting. Raise your hand. Seriously. Everyone here has a preference of, of what they're more drawn to, kind of global causes or local causes. Does that make sense? I just, I'm curious. I mean, and it's not that you care about one and not the other. It's just that you have a preference. You feel called to one or the other. Does that make sense? Raise your hand if you feel called to global causes. Okay? Raise your hand if you feel called to local causes. Did you guys see that? That's one body that's, that's equally not divided but focused into different areas. And we need both. We need each other. And we need to appreciate that not everybody's like me and not everybody's like you, but together we're able to do the full spectrum of, of, of love. So, I mean, please, if you're in conversations or in small groups or talking with a friend or over coffee, try to have a balanced view that says, I wish my church would this or I wish my church... You know, I'm glad my church does this. Let's keep working hard to do this. Or I'm glad my church does this. But we need to not lose sight of this. Let's have that balanced kind of view. Can we agree to do that? Yeah? Okay. First off, I like that answer. Very nice. Very, understands the complexity of the situation. Um, so I've got a good skeptical question for you uh, regarding the hiddenness of God. So my question is, don't you think hell, eternal torment, is a bit harsh just because someone chooses not to believe in a God who is hidden or, in other words, kind of pretends not to exist? Because from my own stance as a non-believer and someone but who is also a seeker after truth, goodness, um, who's open to the voice of God. It looks to me as like all God's kind of left you with is a book and a religious system. And doesn't hell seem kind of harsh for someone who doesn't reject God, but just rejects a book, a religious system, a dogma? It just, I'm just curious. Thanks. <laughs> I, I said we didn't have to call this the skeptics ball um, this morning. Uh, it's a very good question. Um, let me, let me be brutally honest with you from a philosophical standpoint, brutally honest with all of you, from a ph- uh, philosophical standpoint, the problem of evil isn't the real problem. <laughs> That's the conversation, the problem of evil and suffering, but there's an answer to that, and the answer is real simply, um, you can't stop a story in the middle of the book and cry foul, right? You've got to wait till um, the end of the book see how things resolve themselves, and then you evaluate, okay? So the answer to the problem of evil is real simple. Um, the afterlife is the mystery. It's beyond our ken. That's a philosophy word. It's not my name. It's, it's, it's beyond me. You know, it's beyond our ken, beyond our understanding, and it's the end of the story. So that's really the thing that balances it out. It's, it's, so the problem of evil is a felt problem more than it's a philosophical problem. <clears throat> the problem of hell is a philosophical problem. So that's the real rub, because now what you're saying is um, there are people going to be punished or put in a place of torment eternally for um, infinitely, in some sense, for finite sins. So it brings in this, uh, the notion of justice almost against God. God, if uh, an eye for an eye in the book of De- Deuteronomy... The punishment must fit the crime. It wasn't like actually pluck an eye out, but the Mosaic law there was really that the punishment should fit the crime. 
And so the idea here is really like, hey, this seems crazy. Um, someone doesn't know, someone doesn't understand, someone uh, messes up for 10 years, 60 years, whatever. Whatever it is, it doesn't pan out, and they go to eternal torment. Um, that's, that's actually the, the right question. Um, what do I make of that? I really think that that's one of those things that, that ought to serve to push against the church and formulas. Uh, Jesus didn't really work by formulas. I mean, he used metaphor and story and analogy to try and get at big, kind of deep themes and concepts. And, and, uh, <laughs> and we need to realize, man, we, we've got to grapple with these things a little bit deeper than just having formulas and just hell, heaven hell, hell, heaven. You know, I mean, we kind of tend to do that, right? Um, number two, we got to realize there's a gravity here that should keep us from really judging who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. We do that a lot. We use the word saved so much. In the, in the Old Testament, the word saved was almost exclusively used for geopolitical things. Being saved out of slavery, being saved out of this oppressive situation, being saved... Well, I mean, we use that word so much, and, and what we're implying with it is always heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. We, we really kind of fixate on that word and that concept. And Jesus had told his disciples, like, look, you work really hard. I, I, anyone see the movie The Guardian? It's like, I didn't know Kevin Costner was in it. I might not have seen it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Kevin Costner, he's like the, he's the, uh, he's the, what is he called? Coast Guard swimmer guy. You know, and he's training, um, who's the guy married to Demi Moore? Um, what was it? Ashlyn, Ash, Ashton Kutcher. So they're talking, and they finally have this conversation. Ashton Kutcher's like, what do, you, what do you do? Like, we hold, like, life and death in our hands. And Kevin Costner's like, I swim as hard as I can, as fast as I can, for as long as I can. And then the sea takes the rest, you know, and it's this, like, dramatic moment. Um, <laughs> like, we're called not to be, like, saved, saved, hell, heaven, 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 I don't know, questionable. Um, we're, not, we're not, you know, and see the passivity again that we tend to always put ourselves into. We play the, the critic and the spectator so easily, but we weren't called to that. We were called to love, 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 share, grace, share, Christ magnify, you know, get in, help, grace, forgive, love, forgive, whatever it is, and, and work, and it's like, yeah, I don't know what God's going to do. You know, I swam as hard as I can, as fast as I can, as long as I can, and, and I, I did what I can. And God's a just God, and, and that whole sorting out thing, that's His. And so we exacerbate this problem by, by, by really taking on these categories and these definitions and trying to place people where they belong. And then it's like, it really surfaces that question. I think it's a lot more of a, the mystery of God. Like, we're called to love and to share, and we're called to just let God figure out. And if God's just, then we're trusting that he's not going to invalidate justice in, in doing this. Does that make sense? Like, he's not going to, a just God is not going to act unjustly. What he decides to do with whom will fit justice because he's a just God. Okay, and he's also a loving God. God is love. So if we step back, are a little bit more humble, 
let the mystery play a little bit more. I don't think this problem is, is as big of an issue. It's like, man, we don't know, but we serve a just God, and, and what he does will be, will be just. Second, lastly, I think thirdly, um, our definition of hell throughout, like, the ages, maybe Dante's Inferno and stuff like that, you know, helped give us this idea. But we, we focus on the torment side of hell, and the idea, the analogies that are used, the words that are used, the ideas that are used, especially like with Jesus pointing to like outside the city where the dump is and the dump's always on fire, you know? So like that place is where you're going to go. You're going to be cast out of the city. You're going to be an outcast living at the dump, you know, in some sense, removed from social life, and, and that's a bad place to be. And so you, you begin to see that Hell is an idea of, of separation at a relational standpoint. First, not punishment or torment first. Um, C.S. Lewis in the book The Great Divorce does a great job of kind of illustrating this, but it's separation from God is the essence of hell. Heaven, God's dwelling place, his home where he's at, is the essence uh, being with him, that relational concept be united. Jesus prays that we might all be one. So being with God relationally is the essence of heaven, not, will I have an Xbox? You know, like, I mean, some of the questions we ask that really are around, like, our own little felt desires, the essence of heaven is relational unity. Therefore, the essence of hell, the opposite of that, is is relational disunity and separation from God. And so the idea of hell, C.S. Lewis says this, is... um, you choose it yourself. You, he, he really tries to argue for this, that um, heaven is the idea of saying, I want you, God. Hell is the idea of saying, I don't want you, God. Um, and therefore, if you put it in the sense of relational um, separation, hell is not as much of a justice problem where you're being tortured um, for, for you know small sins, big torture, that doesn't weigh out. Hell, in that sense which I think is biblical, becomes, um, it's very just. You chose not God, um, and that's, that's where you're at. You're away from God, separated from God. You're in darkness. Um, you're outside the city where the dump is in some sense. Um, and, and it changes that equation. Uh, I could go on, but I'm not going to. We could talk more about that too. I, I mean, I think there's some ways that we have to define categories that, that help us make some distinctions and, and see it a little bit differently. Um, yeah, but maybe we can talk a little more afterwards. You're a blessing to Bend. I just want to say that right now. Um, I'm just really glad, glad to be here. So I'm going to take it down a few notches. I'll give you a context, okay? I'm a mom. I have an 8-year-old and a 12-year-old in public school. The Halloween season is approaching. And, uh, I was wondering if you could provide uh, a biblical, theological basis, um, a thoughtful one, keep it in mind that this is going to be explained to children, um, of ghosts. You know, there's so much on TV, all these shows that they have now, uh, the real heavy occult basis, and even in the classrooms, they constantly are reading ghost stories and um, at the middle high, middle school level, even. And so um, I was wondering if you can help us out there. Thanks. 
Okay, the, uh, the reason we, the reason for complexity is ultimately for simplicity. Okay, so if you ever come like on a Sunday or you're here like, oh, what, whatever, <laughs> like shut up already, like, you know, I mean, that's not, we're, we're reaching a level of complexity that's stupid or something like that. You've got to understand the reason for complexity is simplicity. Um, when you get Ikea furniture and you open it up, you know, you, you don't want to look at the directions because they're complex and they give you a headache. I mean, they really give you a migraine. Um, and they're all like, you know, where do I start? What do I do? But you engage that complexity because you know ultimately it's going to simplify the process of putting together this piece of furniture. Does that make sense? Um, and if you don't, you just shoot straight for simplicity. You end up doing something out of order, you know, and those things weren't designed to go, like, be undone, you know, and so then you're, like, kicking things and breaking things. And, um, I wouldn't do that, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, the idea here is, is simply we engage complexity for the purpose of simplicity, okay? I had somebody email me after last week, and, they, and this is treading on dangerous ground, but they asked me about yoga, Christians and yoga. You know, it, it stems back to religious practices and, and ultimately Hinduism or whatnot. And what do we make of that as Christians? And let me give the answer I emailed back to that person in brief, and I think it will help us with Halloween. Uh, the first thing is there's matters of degree. Um, R-rated movies and PG movies are, are different. We all know that. And so we, we begin to draw lines. There's matters of degree. Nothing's ever really either or. So I think we have to understand there's matters of degree. Second... Um, and it's not really pertinent to this one, but it might be, depending on family dynamics, but there's matters of health. So you've got Timothy here, who's not drinking because he's like, man, I will not drink around these people and potentially compromise my witness. And Paul emails him and says, you know, hey, stupid, um, you need to drink because your health. Like In, in those days, water was di- potentially dirty. Um, like if you went to the third world now and, and fermented drink wasn't, and you know, and Paul's like, hey, look, I get that. You need to drink some wine. Um, and so, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which we, we have a lot of discussions, but then if and when health is involved, it really does factor in from a wisdom standpoint. How do you shake this out? Um, and then lastly, there's a, there's a sense in which, like, yoga and whatnot really comes down to the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. In the New Testament, there was a lot of pagan religions where meat would be sacrificed to idols and then, you know, after it's sacrificed to them or kind of put in front of them as some sort of a religious offering, do you then take and eat that meat? I mean, it's kind of tainted because it's, you know, cultish or whatever, whatever. I mean, so do you eat that meat? And big debates about this, you know, it's kind of funny, right? And the real answer really was whatever you can do in faith really... Um, is just that. It's doing it in faith and trusting that your motives are pure and, and whatnot. If you can't do it in faith, then it becomes sin. So if your conscience really grabs you on that thing, you shouldn't do it. If you're, if you're like, you know, it's like nothing to me, then it's like, it's, it's, a, it's really a faith thing. Are you able to do it? And in that sense, you're making a private decision, not a broad category that everybody has to live by. Does that make sense? So the whole yoga thing for me, if you're just talking about a video of stretching and depending on who the person is or the maturity level and you know what the you know what their understanding of it is and da 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 it's very different than being all the way on this end of the spectrum um, and you know I 
defining what that would look like. Does that make sense? And this person, you know, I'm not going to tell them it's, it's good or bad. I'm going to say, look, you already know the answer to the question. You know where your conscience is at. You know where your faith is at. And if you can do a stretching video, do a stretching video. I don't care. Um, if you can't, though, if because of your background, your upbringing, your whatever, like it's every time you do it, you get a tinge or whatever, well, then don't do it. Go get a Jane Fonda video, you know. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I answered the yoga question. And here's what I, I said by way of we really have to frame this. And I think this is pertinent to the Halloween discussion. Um, the argument that's usually given that I hear about how Christians shouldn't be involved in yoga um, commits the genetic fallacy. Okay? The genetic fallacy is a philosophical fallacy that says where something came from is what makes it wrong. And that's not true. Um, wrong is based on wrong, not lineage. Okay? Um, so the genetic fallacy, if we really started making the error of going with that, um, we couldn't ever celebrate Christmas. You know what? We couldn't celebrate Sunday, which is the day for the sun, or the month of August, which is after Caesar Augustus, or, you know, you should never as a Christian, like, utter the Easter bunny out of your mouth, or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, this would lead to, like, an absurd thing, because you're like, man, when I, when I, on Sunday, I'm not worshiping the sun. It's just a, it's become a cultural name, or hook, or category, or when I'm celebrating Christmas, I'm not doing a pagan religion. Like, that's just not where I'm at. You know, it doesn't, I mean, that's hundreds of years ago, lineage, whatever. So things become, over time, divorced from where they began, and they become their own thing. And you have to evaluate them based on their own thing, culturally, and to you, what do they really mean? The, the guy I was emailing with came back with a great example. He said the, the big muddy ranch, or the, the, uh, the youth, um, what is it, Young Life Ranch, that used to be owned by, you know, we, we can't, like, that place is evil because it used to be. No, it, it's not. It's what it is now. Does that make sense? And so with the yoga thing, it's really in America becoming more and more of a cultural thing than, than like a religious kind of thing. To more and more of a degree, it's, it's becoming just kind of like stretching or this or that or the other. So we, we can't commit the genetic fallacy in our argument. We have to evaluate it on its own merits. Getting to Halloween, and we'll wrap up um, with this, but... One, Halloween really is, it's All Hallows' Eve, which is the night before All Saints' Day. Did you guys know that? I mean, the next day is All Saints' Day. So the interesting thing is, um, Martin Luther, when he was reacting to what was going on in the Catholic Church, on All Saints' Day in Wittenberg, they were going to put out all these relics, and he was like, this is ridiculous, all these relics, I can explain it later. But, um, so on All Hallows' Eve... He banged his 95 theses to the door, like 95 complaints with what's going on with the church, the day before All Saints' Day when all these relics are going to be displayed so that people could engage kind of in this dialogue, right? Um, so the interesting thing is, is Halloween is actually Reformation Day. And so our family, we celebrate Reformation Day with candy. Um, lots of candy. Um, Martin Luther wore this frock. You can dress up and carry, you know. Um, but I, th I think you've got to balance. And, and so bringing it, and then it, it, it will bleed over to ghosts at the end here. But as far as Halloween comes back, you, you really got to bring it back to what, what, what do your kids know and what are they thinking and what are you teaching them, what's being taught to them? What, how do you see it? 
I mean, really, where's your faith at? Where's your conscience at? Um, uh, you know, is it, what is it, what is it really? Um, and then I think you, as parents, you make your best decision that says, look, at the end of the day, like, here's where we're going to land. And here's why someone else is going to land in a different place. Um, but this is why we're going to land here. And we've, we've got a clear conscience about landing here. Okay? Then when it comes to ghosts, what, what I really simply say about that is that the conversation's too soon. We, we've traditionally done a horrible job in the church with letting things unroll according to the developmental stages of, of kids. You know, my kids have had people talk to them about, not here, you know, but talk to them about Lucifer falling and whenever you, like, are thinking bad about yourself, you know, and criticizing yourself, it's Satan, like, you know, like, attacking you. And my, my four-year-old, it's just, it's too much, right? Um, so, you know, it's like I'm a pastor and my kids are experiencing religious abuse, you know, or something like that. It's like, how does that happen, right? But it's not that anyone's bad or ill-motivated. It's just that we haven't trained ourselves. And it all goes back to, I think, the, the de-intellectualizing of the church. Like, uh, and I'm not talking about bad intellectual stuff. I'm talking about good stuff. Where we really value reason and thinking things through. Um, we've kind of devalued that over a long period of time. We have to kind of really begin again saying, let's think these things through. Um, do our best. Be humble with it, but think them through. And, and frankly... You know, the Bible talks about um, souls or, or persons that are non-material. I mean, the Holy Spirit is a non-material thing. Um, angels appearing to people are non-material beings, okay? I don't know that I call them ghosts or, or whatever. Um, but the Bible talks about non-material people, okay? But it's a, an abstract concept to really understand correctly. You need to be further along in your developmental stages, be able to reason abstractly. And so if, if we get to doing the whole ghost talk too young, what we end up saying is we, we end up saying things that aren't true. Some of our, our Sunday school lessons can make that mistake. In, in the desire to simplify, we actually make it false. Does that make sense? We, we, we say it in such a way that really isn't accurate. Well, those kids hang on to those views, and they grow up with those views, and then all of a sudden they're high school kids or college kids going, Really? They remember it all the way back to this, in this way. And they're like, that, that's not true. Or, or that's kind of weird. Or that's kind of strange. And that's what the church believes? I, I can't accept that. And, and then the, the next step is, I need to look somewhere else for good answers about the universe. So, we, you know, so far, as far as the ghost thing is concerned, I think there's some good, deep answers about non-material beings we can involve in that and look at scripture and stuff like that. I think the bigger question is just trying to avoid the conversation until it's the right time. Lest we end up doing more harm than good. Sometimes the best way to answer a question is by not answering it. Like we practice this all the time with our four kids. We, we're great at changing the subject. It's that, I mean, that's, that's how we raise our kids. We change the subject. Um, so, so anyways, I hope that I hope that helps a little bit with the Halloween thing. And it's not about Halloween. It's not about yoga. I think it's about not being black and white. The answer to that question really comes down to not, you know, things are degrees like a dimmer switch, not an on-off switch. And we have to begin to really rigorously analyze them and find out where does it really land? Well, where do we land in it? 
not just blah or blah. So hopefully that helps. Let me just say this, and then the band's coming up now. They're going to do, um, they're going to do special music and an offering. But again, uh, that whole complexity exists for simplicity thing. I really mean that. At the end of the day, Jesus took a child and said, um, "This is what the, the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's the faith of this child. It's, it's not like formulas or logical arguments or, or all sorts of hoops and." It's really the simplicity of this child organically trusting their father or trusting God and just naturally wanting to follow that versus following a different direction. So again, complexity exists for simplicity. The real desire here ought to be to come back to a childlike faith where you just say, God, I don't understand it. I can't see it. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. But I'm going to walk by faith because I trust you like with a big smile trust, like a child trusts. Um, and, and just... You know, hopefully this community can come back to that and that we affirm that in each other that, that it really does really boil down to and it's the question of dealing with each other in our messy lives. It's just the simplicity of love. It's the simplicity of faith. It's the simplicity of children seeing things the way they really are and responding to that with a desire for good and shalom and peace. So hopefully all this helps. Um, we're going to take the offering now.